did you all, or should I say, did you all miss me? Been a while, right? <laughs> you missed not seeing me every week. I decided to take a little vacation. <laughs> I like to say a vacation. I had to go to work and do gigs, travel, bring the sound of what we all do around the world. And I have to thank everyone each and every week that we've been doing the Friday shows in the UK and Europe and bringing such wonderful effect. And nobody realizes how much you really do until you're out there and people stopping me saying, oh my God, don't go nowhere. I'm like, why? Why am I not going nowhere? No, Because I got to tell you something. The interview with such and such was, oh, that's what you're talking about. Okay, so you want to talk about True House Stories. Yeah, oh my God. True House Stories this, True House Stories that. True House. And I'm like, yes, I'm so glad we made that impact. I'm so glad we made that impact. And we're not stopping. <laughs> two years in, two years in. And of course, as people start coming on, hello, Mr. Kaz. And as people start understanding the true meaning as to why True House Stories began, yes, it began in a dark period in history. And never before did we have a plague like this at a time in this timeline of life. We had it in the pre and last century, of course, in the time, but you know, technology was different. And because of technology, I was able to bring my living room into your living room and then bring our friends' living rooms in to share. So, of course, as we get started, I will start the show because when we do Twitch, it takes like somebody warming up the car. <laughs> it's got to turn on on a cold day. It has to get out there to everybody. We're coming on board and people are starting to come. And please, hello, Anastasia Beaver House and everyone that's coming in. Please share the show because we're just about ready to start. And those that are just tuning in, I want to thank everyone, of course, for supporting us each and every week on the Fridays. Now we do the dance show. Fridays is hot. It's another hot show. We love doing that. We've had Jabig, Mickey Affleck. Ralphie D, Jeff Bujak, hopefully soon. This guy that's coming on, this handsome man from the Wizard of Oz area, he's going to tell you all about it. I'm going to bring him up in a second, but I want to start the monologue in a moment. Just want to give everybody time to tune in and get comfortable. Which, once we're going to do with this Twitch show is I'm going to have that monologue music starting soon because everybody needs to know the show's starting. So, okay. So here we go. Welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. And it's a hot moment in August. And the whole world has been hot. Or should I say the Northern Hemisphere for this moment. And the, between the droughts and between everything going on, we've all been traveling the world and doing what we do, bringing music and happiness to everyone's dance floors everywhere. But there comes a time that we have, we meet people along the way that were fans of you, 
and now you become fans of them. And I became a huge fan of this man. <laughs> huge fan. Me and a lot of us love what he does. Um, he's, he has a magical touch um, and has a great way of taking old and making it current. And not many can do that with class. He's got a really big story. And the story comes like this. Imagine going with your little red heels down the golden yellow brick road to the west coast of Australia. It's far from America, from New York. And I know this because I've flown it from New York to Perth, where he lives behind this curtain. It's 11,879 miles, give or take. It's 27 to 30 hours to get to this part of the world. It is the most, let's put it like this, they are the most separated from everywhere and were the most safest till we found out they couldn't be that safe. But <laughs> it was super cool that they were able to, when we were all locked down, they were partying. We were all jealous. We were like, oh my God, how is this possible? Anyway, all the way from Perth, but I caught him in the United Kingdom before he leaves to go back home and be and play that game, the Wizard of Oz, and be our, our magical surgeon. I'd like to welcome to True Our Stories, Mr. Greg Packer. Doc Packer. Yes. Hello. Wow. <laughs> what an introduction. <laughs> yeah, look, you know what? I get paid good money to do those introductions. I want to make sure you get what's yours. You, you, you were pretty spot on with, with Perth being the most isolated city in the world. Yeah, I mean... The, clo the, the the shortest distance I fly to to a gig is is three and a half hours. So that's 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 sort of an indication of how isolated we are. I mean, here in the UK, you can you can be in Bulgaria or Croatia or something in less time than that. So, yeah. <laughs> For what it takes you to get to Hong Kong, Hong Kong would be a, probably about nine hours. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm in the UK. From New York in seven. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Give you an idea. That's how far you see how far he it's like it's crazy. But I know I've been to Perth. It's beautiful. It is beautiful, yeah. Beautiful. The only thing I always ask everyone is I don't like to go to the ocean out there because I'm always afraid of the great whites in that right. area. <laughs> so I yeah. say everybody, I'll yeah. sit by the pool. And it's it's not get it's not getting any easier either. I I vaguely remember last summer, um, every other day on the news there was another victim with a, of a shark bite. And it's usually the, like because the the surfers over there, everyone wants. There's a lot a lot of surfers in Australia in general in Perth, and um, and it doesn't put them off either. They get they get bitten by sharks. They get interviewed, and then they ask, "Are you going back in the water?" And they say, "Yeah." So, oh my god. <laughs> it's just we're we're on their turf, and that's the risk we uh, risk we take. So, um, but yeah, there is quite a lot of um, sharks over there. But my 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 family here in I'm originally from the UK. For those that don't know, um, Northampton, where I'm I'm staying and speaking to you right now. But a lot of my family over here are more scared of the the, the insects, the snakes, and the spiders. And I say it's not that bad. It's the sharks you've got to be got to, got to be worried about, really. <laughs> 
I know because you know what? They, they don't, they've never seen that shark like that. I've yeah. seen them, they're ridiculously huge. They will chomp you in two secs. Like, yeah. ah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Welcome everyone to the show and grab your wine because this story is going to be very, very interesting. <laughs> watched this show before. He wanted to know if his story should be in detail. I said, if any place you're going to give it, we must have it here. So let's get to that one question that I ask everyone. And it's a really simple one. And I know you rehearsed it. How does music find you as a young kid? Oh, you um, I owe everything to my mother, basically. She's the music head in the family. My father, my brother, and my relatives and you know no one in my family is really there's no other musicians in my family like there's there's no one that kind of played in a band or played an instrument or anything it's literally just me on my own I mean I've got like cousins and uncles that that like music but they never took it further to try and uh, make a career out of it or anything but my mum she's a massive disco head she loves disco music and um she obviously bought lots of records when I was a kid growing up in the UK. And um, I can remember, well, I've actually got the records now. <laughs> They're in my collection. But um, she would have uh, records like McFadden and Whitehead, Ain't No Stopping Us Now, uh, Gary's Gang, Keep On Dancing, which I remixed this year on, uh, on Sam Records, which was a massive milestone for me because I remember that tune being played as a kid in the house. And um, and things like Boney M, Daddy Cool, you know, lots of hits. But she she loved disco. She loved soul. She loved Marvin Gaye. And I was exposed to it at a very, very young age, um, which is funny because you asked me that question today. And I can remember hearing Boney M, Daddy Cool when I was a young kid, like probably 10 years old, nine years old. And um, and just today, my cousin where I'm staying here in um, in the UK, she was babysitting her her grandchild, who's 10, and he was walking around the house singing Daddy Cool. And I found that a little bit, like, oh, like freaky, if anything. Like, I just thought, wow, I, I did that when I was 10 years old, walking around the house singing Daddy Cool. And he's doing it today. Hello, Alfie, if you're listening, by the way. <laughs> but, yeah, I just thought, I thought, what a, what a bizarre thing, like, you know, you know, it's, and, and and obviously I wasn't old enough to enjoy that music when it came out. I wasn't in clubs or anything, but I grew up listening to it and I was exposed to it. And and he's probably doing the same right now. Um, so it's amazing, especially when I'm playing at disco events to people that are in their 20s and they know all the records because, you know, they obviously grown up with it as well through their parents collection so I, I literally owe everything to my mother as far as uh, getting me hooked into music uh, as such but um it was my older brother that brought me my first record and it was in 1982 and it was the message by grandmaster flash and the furious five and um like he knew I liked it because it was in the charts. Um, we'd watched the, the video clip on TV. So it was a birthday present. So he bought me that. Uh, that was my first piece of vinyl. And I, like a lot of kids probably in those days, I, I memorized every uh, every lyric in the track. And I used, to, I used to sing it on the way to school. Like I knew all the verses. <laughs> Same with um, 
uh, Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight. You know, I was just obsessed with, with, with hip hop, you know, rap and disco and soul and funk. And that was kind of my, yeah, my childhood. You know, the question I always have is on the radio, I know your mom's playing the stuff. Were these records also all over the radio mm. at that time? Because here in America, a lot of the records that you mentioned, like Gary's Gang, you saw them on American Bandstand, which mm. was a chart show. Yeah. And sure. you also had three to four major disco stations at that time in New York alone that mm. really launched off yeah. the whole disco thing. Was yeah. it the same for you where you were? Well, we had Top of the Pops, which I think is, is now finished now. But, um, I mean, that went for decades. And it was just basically, I think it was like they were performing live on the show, but they were obviously lip syncing. <laughs> um, but it was just, yeah, anything that was in the top 40 um, would would go on Top of the Pops. And, and, and we all were, I mean, much probably like yourself, we used to record off the radio as well so we'd have cassette tapes in there and we'd record like our favorite songs wait for them to come on the radio and make our own compilations on um on cassette tape and you know play them in our bedrooms in our walkmans on the way to school what, what whatever and that's that's how we we sourced music i mean i was this was miles before i thought of becoming a dj so um yeah that's just how we we collected music in those days did you see you know, like here in New York, we had so many DJs going, things like that. Was there any like dances going on, kid dances at your school and stuff that, you know, let's just put it like this. The one that teaches decide to bring a Victrola record player and play music because we had that happen here for us, you know. In school, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I, I do remember, I mean, going back to sort of like the early to mid 80s, it was, it was break dancing. Uh, that we was all into b-boying you know uh robots cracks head spins you know uh all that kind of stuff and and uh we on occasion we was allowed to bring our ghetto blasters to school and um not every day like on a special day. No, like when you would get like a free dress day at school that okay you can bring in you know yeah, go on. Sorry. <laughs> Blast to explain that to people because I know what that means. But for some of the younger generation, what is a ghetto blaster? A ghetto blaster is a, a portable uh, cassette deck, basically. You, you had a handle. I used to often have a twin twin tape deck uh, and built-in speakers. And you get some good ones. There were some high-range ones that were really quite powerful and bassy, um, which the rich kids had. Uh, I didn't personally have... Um, <laughs> <laughs> an expensive one mine was quite cheap but yeah we would we would catch the train into the city or, or the bus and and take it on the bus with us and um and that's how we sort of yeah we would play music we'd put down lino or cardboard in the middle of the city we'd put a hat out people could put money in if they wanted to do a bit of busking and we would break dance and that was we was that was the thing that's that's you know we was quite obsessed with it and i I was sort of, I felt like even in the school days, I felt like I was the DJ because I was the person that was recording tapes for people. Like I would buy the next album on, say, Street Sounds uh, Records, which I was a um, big supporter of in the 80s. And I would have the latest electro compilation or something like 
like that. And then all I'd have six or seven people in my class at school wanting copies of it. And I would say, okay, bring me a blank tape. I'll record it for you. And um, I never used to charge them. Wasn't, I wasn't like, um, trying to make a business out of it. I probably should have, but, um, but yeah, I just, I just loved, loved sharing music, spreading music, you know, like I'd, I'd, I'd hear a song and I'd go, Oh God, this is great. I want, I want my friends to hear this. And, you know, I just felt like it was boring, almost boring enjoying a song on your own. It's like you needed to get it out there, let other people listen to it. And I would play stuff to my older brother and go check this one out. Cause he liked a lot of hip hop and funk and rap as well. And I was collecting music and um, yeah, I just loved being in control of it, being the man with the music. And I was quite like that uh, during my school days. Did you notice at that time, disco was not the word. Planet rock was the word. Mm, mm. Looking for the perfect beat was the word. Electro. Right? Electro was Arthur Baker, Arthur Baker Productions. <laughs> he, was, he, was the man. he was the man. <laughs> Mom's records were passe at that time, correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So you put those records away and you're listening to IOU, Arthur Baker, John Rocca. Yes. Uh oh God. I mean, the list goes on Jelly Bean doing yes. mixes. I mean. No talk about DJing yet. You haven't started DJing. You just plan. Yeah, no, no. Well, well. The funny thing is, in the very, very early days, the very early eighties, I was, I would go to a record store and I'd buy cassettes. I wasn't interested in vinyl. I was too young to to even know what it was. And I can remember my mum telling me off for putting fingerprints on the records, or or she was worried I was going to scratch them. So I wasn't allowed to touch the records in those early days. But tapes. You know, I had my own tape player, so I was safe with those. Um, and when my brother brought me that album, um, The Message, I remember asking the question, what am I going to do with this? Because it was a piece of vinyl. And he said to me, you can put that on the turntable. We had like one of those hi-fi stack systems, the brown and silver ones from the 70s. He says, you can put that on vinyl, you can record it onto cassette, and if, you know... If the tape chews up, you know, in the future or breaks or you lose it, you can re-record it again and again and again. And I, I remember thinking, wow, what what a what a wicked concept. I was just I was all over it. And I thought, well, so I can have both. I can have the record and the tape. When you buy the tape, you've only got the tape. So that was it. That was the game changer for me. So I started to collect vinyl. Uh, all throughout the 80s, like albums, 12 inches, 7 inches. And it did get to a point uh, in the later part of the 80s where my friends would call in on me um, on the way to school and, and they'd look in my bedroom and just see crates and crates of records. And they'd just say, I'm surprised you're not a DJ with all this, all these records. And I'd, I honestly had no interest in it um, at that time. I just wanted to keep collecting. I was just obsessed with collecting music. And um, eventually uh, I left school in 1987. Um, I did one year's work with my father. And at the end of that first year's work, you get all your tax back. You don't pay any tax. So it was it was the most money I'd ever had in my life, which I think at the time was about one thousand five hundred um, Australian dollars. But before before you go that far, what year did you make the trek for your family to leave the UK to come to um, Australia? 
Oh, so initially, um, we we moved to Australia in 1983. Um, uh, so, yeah, but I probably yeah i started work in 1987 and then yeah as i was explaining i got my first year's tax uh money back and my parents were like put it in the bank save it build a nest nest egg but no i was keen to spend it i wanted to spend it um and all my friends kept saying buy some decks and a mixer you've got the money just do it and i sort of thought you know what yeah yeah what what's stopping me i've got the money maybe, maybe i should look at doing it and um <laughs> so i bought a, a pair of really cheap belt belt driven turntables which were awful no pitch control nothing and a, and a cheap mixer um and the only tracks that i was able to beat mix were the tracks that were the same bpm or double copies of the same record so like you know like uh, if you had two copies of the same record going, you know it's the same BPM. And then it, I'd struggle to sort of mix and match other tempos. So I didn't keep those for very long and uh, ended up getting a second-hand pair of uh, Technics uh, 1200s. And, um, and then, yeah, ultimate game changer. Within within a week, I was, I was able to sort of beat mix whatever I wanted, really. I picked it up very quickly because I think I just had the ear for it because – don't forget, growing up in the in the eighties, I would listen to DJs mixing on tapes. I had a friend who had like some contacts in in New York, and he would get the Kiss FM uh, Red Alert shows, um, and he he would get hold of them, and I would tape them off of him. And because Red, Red Alert was was a, a genius, and he still is. Oh, he talks like that. Ay! <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, uh, I mean, and he would be mixing, scratching, you know, he'd have two copies of the same record and doing, you know, like where you, you put one in front of the other with a crossfader and sort of like make things repeat. He was doing some some crazy stuff. And there was some really good stuff coming out of the UK as well. Um, I had a friend send me uh, a video of the DMC um, World Championships where Chad Jackson won in 1987. And, um, and his routine, I was able to to watch it because it was a video, and I could see what he was doing. He was scratching and uh, and mixing, beat juggling, doing all that stuff. And and I think that is what that was the turning point that made me think, yeah, I I really really want to do this. I want to be a DJ. Um, and uh, so I had a fairly good um, like ear for for how things should have sounded. And then when I sort of had it in front of me, the two decks and the mixer and the headphones, um, I kind of I picked up scratching pretty quickly um, and um, yeah, I'd get the two copies of the same record and start doing the juggling. And uh, I, that, I was sort of drawn a little bit more to that type of DJing to begin with rather than what we do now, which is play a long two hour, two hour, three hour set, you know, so I was into the sort of showman kind of DJ and the DMC stuff. I wanted to scratch and beat juggle and do all that stuff. And, um, and I, and I entered a competition. I entered the, West Australian Mixing Championships in um, in 1991, and I and I won it. I got first place, and I defended my title in in 92. But I think after that, I kind of I did I just got bored of that type of DJ, and I was like, no, I want to I want to be the man in the room, you know, with a with a full room of people. I want to control the music over a period of time, two hours, three hours, or on occasion the whole night. You know, uh, that was the kind of DJ, and I wanted to do. Um, and so I followed that path in the end. 
So what style of music does that take you towards to become that DJ that is adored in the room? Well, the, the first the first set I ever played in a nightclub, I was covering it was I wasn't even 18. Uh, I was covering for a, a guy that was running an all ages uh, under well an under 18 night uh, and he fell sick and he rang me up and he said, Greg, can you can you cover me? Um, and I said, I've, you know, I've never played in a nightclub. He said, it doesn't matter. I'd rather have someone up there playing music than cancel the night. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I didn't even have a proper record box. I had like an actual milk crate. And I remember parking my car in the city, walking through town, like with this bloody plastic milk crate full of vinyl. And uh, and obviously it was a life-changing moment for me. Like I loved it. I loved that night, loved that power of, you know, being in control of the dance floor. And, um, and even the, funny enough, the management, Manager said to me afterwards, you did a really good job tonight. Um, he asked me what your name is and everything. And he said, it's a shame you're not eight, 18 years old because um, I would book you for our for our normal regular club nights. And I said to him, well, I'm turning 18 in three weeks' time because I was 17. He says, really? Because you don't look like you're about to turn 18. I think I looked about 14 at the time. And he says, well, he goes, well, Give us a call then if that's um, if that's the case, and we'll, we'll we'll get you on. And um, and I started playing in that in that club that that night was or that club was called the Freezer, um, in Perth, uh, WA, and that's uh, kind of where it all started for me from from that point onwards. And but but the music I was playing, um, was kind of the that late eighties hip hop. But it wasn't like the raw hip hop, like Public Eric Enemy. Being Rakim, Eric B and Rakim paid in I, full. That type did, of stuff. I did like that stuff. I did like Eric B and Rakim. I liked Public Enemy, NWA, all that stuff. I was into it. Don't get me wrong. But the stuff I I was playing in the clubs was like your more swing beat stuff. You, you know, like, um, like Bobby Brown, Bell, Biv DeVoe, that kind of clubby, upbeat R and B. We call beat. that. On this side of the world, New Jack Swing. If New I... Jack Swing, Rex in Effect. That, that's exactly that's that, that. I used to play that track, New Jack Swing by Rex in Effect. <laughs> but that's the that that's what I can remember playing on that very first night was that sort of sound because I remember I didn't want to scare the dance floor with the real hardcore hip hop. I wanted to please the women and please the please the boys and the girls kind of thing. So I played that. Come on, Packer, you know, like militant hip hop. Militant, kill the cops, get killed, like Ice-T did that song, Kill the Police. Mm-hmm. All, that, all that was crazy back then. It was nuts back then. Yeah, some of it was ridiculous, and I wasn't sure whether it was sort of it would appropriate to play in a nightclub, so I just thought, yeah, I would keep it um, quite sort of safe. I, I guess I played safe that night, but um, but it went down great. You know, I never lost the dance floor. It was thoroughly enjoyable, and... Um, yeah, and I got a repeat booking out of it, so it was it was happy days. I mean, and winning that the um, the mixing um, championships as well, I kind of I didn't have to go through that same process that most DJs went through, where they would have to make a demo tape, pass it, you know, put their phone numbers on it, give it to the owners of the clubs, and and hope they'll get a phone call. I, I sort of bypassed that whole kind of process and I kind of just went straight into the limelight through winning the competition because I was unknown people 
people were sort of saying, oh, this guy's going to win it or that guy's going to win it. And they were established DJs um, in the circuit in Perth. And I was an absolute nobody. Nobody knew anything about me. I just just turned up there and won it, basically. So, every it, you know, it kind of put all eyes were on me then. I got offers to play in clubs. I got offers to play in, like, uh, warehouse raves. Um, yeah, it just it all sort of escalated from there, really, which is which was great. Which is awesome because I'm understanding how you get into the next phase of your life, which is the first part before we get to know the surgical guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and the music selection as to why by selection you go down this road. Because a lot of people who know you for your your re-edits and disco stuff don't really know this side of you. No. Some that do know probably were shocked that you went this direction mm. um, because what you're about to tell everyone will make everyone go, oh, interesting. Mm. So, of course, you're in the hip-hop world. You're playing more of what I call the fluffy, Jamma Lewis. Yeah, in the clubs. Jonas C, all that stuff to make everybody do this. Yeah, yeah. At home, I was listening to the hardcore stuff. And then I've always been killed cops. (laughs) Heavy stuff. But he knew there was a place to play it. Yeah. There's a place. Did you have a Raiders jacket too? Did you, were you? I had a troop. I had a troop jacket. (laughs) (laughs) He probably had to have one. Like Stetson Sonic used to wear um, on their album cover. Uh, talking all that jazz well that's that's a good example of of what i was playing as well like talking all that jazz um yeah those those kind of like i would say maybe like upbeat soulful danceable kind of hip-hop you know yeah okay so let's go on so things come into the noughties so you're playing the 80s and you just get into your 20s and the noughties begin yeah or the 90s you mean the noughties and nineties and the English say the noughties, the nineties, yes. Where it where it went from from the hip hop uh thing uh came the jungle and the drum and bass. So that was sort of yeah, around the ninety-two, ninety-three period, I kind of sort of stopped playing um uh hip hop. Uh, I had gone back to the UK several times actually since we emigrated. And I was in the UK in the early 90s, and this whole rave thing was exploding. The breakbeats, you know, Prodigy, you know, people, Bizarre Inc., that kind of sound. And um, I was very drawn to it, to, to the breakbeats because of the hip-hop background. And, um, yeah, it, it's, it's sort of that kind of uh, developed into jungle, and jungle kind of developed into drum and bass. Um, and I stuck with that for 25 years, up to right up till um, 2013. Um, and uh, to be honest, I, I just thought I would never ever turn to another genre of music. Um, but having said that, like I had this little little side project that I used to do with a friend, um, and uh, I mean he goes by the name of Casual Connection. Some people I'm sure have heard of him as well. And we used to play hip-hop, soul, funk, disco. And he, we used to run these nights. Well, he used to run these nights. I used to play at them. They were called Boogaloo. And um, I still say to this day that was where my the earliest form of Dr. Packer was born. Uh, and this would, be, this would have been around about 
2008, 2009, maybe. Um, so I was doing the drum and bass, but then we were doing these little gigs on the side. Um, we were playing the originals on vinyl, no edits. No, we didn't even know what edits were. We were just all about playing the originals. And, and this, the kind of stuff we were playing was on like the Solar record label, like Shalimar, The Whispers, um, Barkays, you know, lots of stuff like that. Um, like just funk, funky kind of soulful, you know, disco kind of stuff. And, um, and we loved it. It was just such a great break from drum and bass. And then I was also touring over here in the UK and Europe, um, doing my drum and bass thing. And I would go record shopping, but I'll, but the promoters would take me into a record store and I would look around the record store and I'd look for the soul funk and disco section. Please search for part two of this podcast on the platform you're watching or listening to. And please do not forget to follow us.